Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, biblicists and Byzantines, welcome to another episode of Clarifying Catholicism. You're watching part 7 of a series on the history of the ecumenical councils according to the Catholic Church. Today, we are covering the Second Council of Constantinople. Much of this information was gathered from Joseph Kelly's The Ecumenical Councils of the Catholic Church, A History. So if you want an in-depth dive into these topics, make sure to pick up a copy of this book. To see the rest of our episodes, check out our playlist in the description. Without further ado, on to the show. In the year 452, Attila the Hun was ravaging the Roman Empire. His sights were set on the city of Rome itself, but when they had arrived at the gates of the city, Pope Leo, the same Pope Leo whose delegates helped run Chalcedon, personally confronted Attila and somehow convinced him to turn away. This example demonstrates just how perilous things were for the western half of the Roman Empire. And while strong leaders like Leo managed to preserve Rome, it was only a matter of time before an army too strong and vicious would appear. This is precisely what happened in 476, about 15 years after Leo's death, when an army killed the last emperor of Western Rome, uh, who was only an infant. The Eastern Roman Empire, now called the Byzantines, which was still intact, decided to recognize these new rulers who, in return, bowed to the Eastern emperors, though in practice the East had very little authority in the West. Even though Rome had been reduced to political rubble, its bishop was still respected. In fact, Pope Gelasius I took advantage of Rome's new status, since now that Rome no longer occupied a seat of political power, the Pope and his Curia could dedicate time exclusively to spiritual and doctrinal affairs. So the Pope proclaimed a doctrine known as Two Swords, in which the Eastern Emperor wielded the Temporal Sword, and the Holy Father wielded the Spiritual One. You can guess which one was considered superior. Back east, the emperors and bishops struggled to combat the surging monophysitism, or belief that Christ has only one nature, that came out of dissenting voices from Chalcedon. As always, politics got in the way and amplified these theological issues. Things rose to a fever pitch when pro-monophysite Egypt, which supplied the empire with food, threatened to cut off supplies to the rest of the empire. This put increasing pressure on the emperors to compromise with, rather than outright condemn, the Monophysite theological rebellion. In 527, a new emperor tried taking a swing at restoring relations among these factions. Part of his strategy was to subjugate the Roman Empire that was mostly under the control of the Goths. So the emperor, Justinian, sent a few armies to some western territories. They were initially welcomed with open arms until they realized that Justinian did not just have political aspirations, but theological ones as well. By this point in history, unlike the West, which had embraced a separation between church and state authorities, the Eastern Emperor was considered an authoritative doctrinal source. This combination of politics and theology meant that often the needs of the country would be placed ahead of doctrinal validity. As relations with Western bishops began souring, Justinian hatched a plan to install his own pro-Eastern bishop. His wife was close with a deacon named Vigilius, and she promised to make him pope one day. So when Pope Agapetus died in 536, Justinian rushed Vigilius to Rome for his election. But it was too late. The Roman clergy chose a man named Silverius. Justinian had a brilliant solution. Occupy Rome, summon Silverius into a meeting, and exile him. The plan worked, and Vigilius was elected. The leader of the Western spiritual world was now puppeteered by an Eastern emperor. 
As the Byzantine Empire's liberation of the West continued, Justinian realized that the religious instability between Monophysites and Chalcedonian Christians could threaten his vision of a reunified Roman Empire. The only things in his way of making a compromise were those Eastern pro-Chalcedonian bishops and the Latin bishops. Justinian knew that he could not condemn or reverse the teachings of a council like Chalcedon, but perhaps he could do the next best thing and condemn the teachings of highly influential theologians whose doctrine was essential to the council. He chose three deceased theologians as his targets and proposed the church condemn their writings on the divinity of Christ. This became known as the Three Chapters Condemnation. Surprisingly, despite his deep connection to the royal family, Pope Vigilius refused to agree with his condemnation. The emperor was furious. He had Vigilius kidnapped and imprisoned in Constantinople. Vigilius held out in prison for a while, going as far as to excommunicate the Constantinopolitan signatories of the Three Chapters Condemnation. However, after much ill-treatment in jail, Vigilius finally relented and agreed to condemn not Chalcedon, but the three writings of theologians who were connected to the council. Justinian's next move was to hold an ecumenical council where the condemnation of the three chapters could be cemented. This council was held in Constantinople, and it began in the year 553. Bishops affirmed their support of the previous four councils, and then proceeded to condemn the three writings that had greatly contributed to Chalcedon. If this sounds like Justinian was trying to have his cake and eat it too, it's because clearly he was. Pope Vigilius and his delegates continued to be mistreated. He reluctantly agreed to the validity of the council, was finally allowed to go home, but died on his journey back. Conveniently, one of Vigilius's deacons wrote treatises and stressed how the council, nor the pope, condemned Chalcedon, and how the second council of Constantinople did not reject any of Chalcedon's teachings. Nevertheless, the West was still outraged by Vigilius's condemnation of the three chapters. As often happens in situations involving compromise, neither side was satisfied. The Monophysites, for example, were largely dissatisfied since they thought condemning three chapters while affirming Chalcedon was not enough. Despite his best efforts, Justinian's quest for a united Christian empire had failed. And we will continue to analyze the impacts of Constantinople II in next episode. Thank you very much.